Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. So today, guys, let me be clear. If you don't believe in multitasking, as in you've actually said that to someone, if you would rather appear to be busy and still can't produce a solution, if you start all your presentations with how much work you've done, if it's never your fault, or if you're not open to stretching outside of your job description. Stop listening to this podcast. In fact, please do us all a favor and just weed yourself out of industry because you are the problem, and quite frankly, we don't need you. We are in the era of the innovator, the leader, the idea, the era where one would rather succeed as a team for the best result than tout his own ego. So listen up, because today we discuss ingenuity and opportunity. Our influencer is the definition of innovation and engineering, a man who wasn't and isn't defined by his job description or his discipline. He looked beyond his deliverables and built a career on ideas and execution. He is a drilling engineer, a frat guy, a completions lead, a workover expert, and an actual inventor. He is Dr. William Fleckenstein. Welcome to the Crude Audacity today. Well, thank you very much. It should be an adventure. (laughs) It always typically is, right? Well, I... As you know, I really have no tolerance for lazy or arrogant, and I'm really excited to share your story today because I think it'll put a little pep in everyone's step tomorrow after they listen to it. Because your career was built on solutioning. You began as a roughneck, you learned the hard way, you worked your way up, you were never limited by a bad manager, and rather you looked for opportunity despite the volatility, which is what we have happening in today's industry. So please take us through your development, your full story, your successes, your failures, your epiphanies. We want to know all of the details. So please, how did you become you? Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I I, uh, uh, probably started uh, thinking about the oil industry uh, with my dad, who uh, worked for a company called Portadrill that built uh, built drilling rigs uh, at uh, actually their plant was uh, at uh, 20th and uh, Blake Street. In Denver. Yeah, so it was basically right where, uh, you know, I think the first base side of uh, Coors Field would be. That's where the bars are now. <laughs> well, and, 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 and so uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, so, so I was around drilling rigs uh, uh, pretty much my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then I had a, an opportunity uh, to uh, go to the Air Force Academy, which yeah. was, you know, quite a, uh, a thing. And, and uh, at, at the time, I was really uh, thought it would be a, a tremendous honor. But I found out I had one small problem. I have sometimes a tendency to have motion sickness, which is a tough thing. In the thing. Air Force Academy. In the Air Force oh, is, is, is going to be rough. And so, so I decided, and also there was a gentleman who was, uh, you know, uh, going to be kind of an alternate for the the uh, appointment. And he was, I thought, the epitome of what an officer should be. Great leader, uh, was uh, really encouraging to Mm -hmm. uh, everybody during the athletic competitions that you had. uh, And uh, and I thought, well, you know, I I really don't know if I could really do this (laughs) from a physical standpoint. And here I've got somebody that really almost would would really just love to do this and so yeah. so i stepped aside and then the question was well what's plan b <laughs> and uh plan b was uh you know going to the car to school of mines i walked on to play football here at uh, at the school uh and uh and, and that was a really 
good experience. Uh, you know, a lot of people I played with have had really great careers. Uh, football and, and athletics uh, is an important part of uh, people's education. Absolutely, 100%. And, and, and so, uh, you know, like for instance, a couple of guys on a team uh, was uh, Doug Lawler, who uh, is the CEO of Chesapeake. Oh. And then, uh, uh, John Chrisman okay. uh, was uh, also the CEO of uh, Apache. Uh, and, uh, and, and look remember, at these high rollers. <laughs> and I remember coming back from this uh, football uh, game that was down in Silver City, New Mexico, and it was a really tough game. And Doug, I think, might have had a concussion. The wind was uh, blowing about 30 miles an hour. Uh, you know, you, you, the football field there is up on top of a tailings uh, hill, I think, uh, outside of a mine. Wow. Uh, and, and I mean, it's it's really a rough place to, to play uh, when the, you know, it's about 34 degrees. It was oh, raining. Oh, my God. Really, really and, and, but the point was, we, we played this football game, then you have this long bus ride back. And I remember, you know, Doug was feeling really, really poorly after the game. Uh, and, and it took a while to get back. I think we got here Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember I had, I think, five exams in the next three days, Monday, Tuesday, Ooh. and Wednesday. And, and you just know it, it, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And, and so one of the things I think that really prepared you, you know, playing athletics at Mines was just how difficult life can be when things are not perfect. Yes. And many times things are not going to be perfect. And so it was very important that uh, had that experience, uh, uh, you know, learning so many things about teamwork uh, and, uh, you know, what a person's really capable of and how mm-hmm. important it is to be concentrating on, uh, you know, kind of the physical parts of what you what you do. Uh, and so, uh, so that was a very important part of how I got to the School of Mines. Uh, you know, I always tell the story about how I uh, chose uh, petroleum engineering. So I come up here to the School <laughs> of Mines and, and uh, you know, I get to the head of the line. They had the lottery system at that time before the internet, so you had to actually hand somebody a schedule to get on uh, your, uh, uh, your class schedule. And uh, there's I have no huge, concept of that. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's hard for people to imagine that you're, you know, from the days of predating the internet. Uh, and here are these, uh, uh, these graduate students were in a line. Uh, they were taking our, our, our uh, schedules. And I remember handing my, 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 and the graduate student looked at me, hit the enter button, and it would not go ahead and enter. And finally, she looked at me, she said, Will, um, you're undecided. You can't be undecided anymore. You got to pick something. And, you know, if you, you got to just pick something right now, or else you're going to have to go back to the end of the line and you miss probably all your classes. You probably won't have an epiphany. So you're going to have all these terrible classes uh, at seven in the morning when they used to have drilling. And, and so I remember I thought about this, and then I suddenly remember watching an episode of Dallas the night before. Dallas! And, yeah. uh, and I thought, you know, my dad's a you know, built drilling rigs. He wasn't an engineer. Uh, and uh, I thought, yeah, this will be, this will be a good thing to do. And yeah. never, never looked back. It was, you know, got a chance to go offshore uh, in the, in the summertime when I was uh, going to school. Uh, and sometimes cool. I think people, they fret too much about, you know, what their, what their life plans are. Uh, oh. You know, so at the School of Mines, there's so many great opportunities here uh, to do things. And so you look for where the opportunities are. Yeah. Price oil in 1982 was, 
was 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 probably you know relatively high, and at that, that time it was in the 30s, which uh, you know then would have been in the hundreds compared to yeah. you know 100 dollars uh, inflation you know, in, and everything in today's uh, today's environment. And uh, fast forward to 1986, the price of oil dropped uh, to the you know to, to nine dollars a barrel or yeah. so, and basically stayed there in in this range <laughs> below 20 dollars a barrel, 15 to 20 dollars a barrel. Uh, for most of my career, until I came back to school in uh, 1995 yeah. to work on my doctorate. Yeah. And so. How was that living? <laughs> you know, so it's actually it was it was interesting. So the first job I had was working as a roughneck, mm-hmm. and uh, at the time there's there it was it was really competitive because all these rigs that went down. A lot of people don't realize in 1982, 81, 82, there were 4,900 rigs running in I the United know that. States. Whoa. None of them were drilling horizontal wells. You hadn't no. found the shale boom. And everybody was drilling for these smaller and smaller conventional targets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember... So what, I, the powder was the hot ticket then? Well, in, in, in so at that time, it was everywhere. You had oil and gas, uh, uh, Texas, obviously, uh, Colorado was a, a big driver. You had 280-some rigs, I think, running up Dang. in Wyoming. And, I mean, so, so you had all these rigs running. And then suddenly... Uh, they t- changed the tax law, was a big part of it, mm-hmm. uh, and the price oil went ahead and dropped. And so all these things came together, and uh, next thing you know, you had about 600 rigs <laughs> running, and they're all drilling these vertical wells. And so it's hard to find a job as a roughneck. Yeah, I can imagine. And so the job I had was actually working in uh, El Centro, California, in August. Uh, <laughs> so it's about 120 degrees. Yeah. And they're geothermal wells. Oh, dang. Uh, which are even hotter. Yeah. Uh, working on, and I remember I was getting eleven twenty-five an hour in a $20 <laughs> a day subsistence uh, to, uh, to go ahead and work on these, uh, uh, on these uh, geothermal wells. Cool. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was a really good experience because if you're going into drilling, mm-hmm. you really need to work on a rig. Yeah. And, you know, work as a roughneck, learn how the, the whole uh, culture mm-hmm. of the rig works. Uh, you see so many things that the person in the company shack never sees that's in, true in the trailer and so you, you know all these different types of issues that are going on out there mm-hmm. and uh, it was really a, a great experience and that led to uh, going to work at a place called El Kills which is outside of uh, Bakersfield okay uh, it's one of the largest oil fields in the United States dang and uh, it's run at that time uh, as a naval petroleum reserve Naval uh, Petroleum Reserve. Right, okay. and so it's a, it was run by the Department of Energy, and they had everything from wells to 1,000 feet deep to 24,000 feet. Uh, was involved in planning my first horizontal well in 1991. Okay. When if you drilled a 1,000-foot lateral... That's uh, impressive. It was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because you didn't have so many of the tools we have, you know, you assume you have now. Yeah. Uh, like mud pulse trilometry hadn't been in, really invented yet. <laughs> so people are using these wire lines that went on the outside of rigs and the CNI tools. It was uh, a totally different world huh. to go ahead and, and, and drill. Uh, and, and so uh, the price of oil dropped. Uh, production is, was slowly dropping through my entire career just about until suddenly you had the shale boom yeah. that, uh, that took off uh, uh, in the 2000s, mm-hmm. first natural gas and then in oil, and the whole world changed. Yeah, and still changing, still evolving. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so that was kind of my background as far as how I ended up, uh, you know, where, where I did. I, you know, walked on as a football player. Uh, my dad had, ref- you know, he had just retired, and he didn't want to, uh, he, he had retired, and he had his, this view that you know he was uh, going to be expected to pay an inordinate amount of my 
uh, uh, tuition because he, you know, he yeah. just retired and had a bank account, and so he wouldn't fill out FAFSA. <laughs> so I never had, you know, in in so, uh, but you know, you had, you know, they got a partial scholarship from playing football, and then I had a Colorado Scholars scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, and I remember I got out of school. And I had a bank account because I, you know, worked offshore. Yeah. Uh, didn't spend, uh, you know, too much money. No loans. Good. Uh, good. And uh, tuition was much, much lower. And that that is a, a big issue we have with today's education is how, you know, we've allowed the price of tuition to to inflate, to, to, to inflate and therefore to pay for it. You're now not getting necessarily grants, but these quote unquote loans mm-hmm. that uh, are, you know, there is a kind of an albatross across uh, people's neck and that that is a big problem yeah but yet still people like when times are down they try and stay in school and they'll just drag out those loans even more it, it is a it is a, a big type of an issue and you know in petroleum engineering you know you get out of school with an engineering degree and uh, you know you're really most likely going to have a really good career mm-hmm. uh, even if you do something outside of your major mm-hmm. there's so many opportunities for engineers to be able to, to go ahead and do things without a doubt. So what prompted you to decide to come back for your PhD? So I got my PhD, I had had a, a couple of professors here at the School of Mines, uh, and uh, you know, they're very, and some of them were entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Thompson, uh, you had a gentleman by the name of uh, B.J. Mitchell, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who was a, a famous guy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in, in so, uh, BJ uh, was entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, he was a really good mind as far as drilling was concerned. Uh, and I, I thought, you know, if I come back to school, uh, we'll get a chance to do some of the things. Work with with uh, BJ more. So mm-hmm. I come back to back to school, and then BJ retires the the next year. Oh, great! <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And so so he, gra- he retires. Then uh, uh, my advisor was uh, Dr. Mark Pearson, who mm-hmm. came down from Alaska. Uh, was here for about. Uh, 18 months or so and then I was always joking that I came to school one day and there's a Brinks truck that's backed up to uh, the petroleum building and uh, Carbo Ceramics was basically making Mark an officer an offer he couldn't refuse and so he ended up uh, going to work for them so my second advisor's gone and then I ended up uh, uh, my third one was uh, was Bill Eustace yeah Uh, and uh, and it was interesting because you know I decided uh, you know I tribe when I was here to start doing some consulting mm-hmm. and uh, started working on uh, projects in California mm-hmm. uh, first with Venico uh, onshore and then offshore uh, with some small independents out there a company called Pacific Operators uh, in what they call the Carpinteria field uh, and uh, I found that I was able to uh, make a much better living than I could if I was working as a research associate. Yeah. So I actually paid <laughs> slightly for my, better. <laughs> so I paid for my own school to to go, uh, you know, to go to school. Paid for tuition, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, was then also able to pick what I was going to do for a thesis. Yeah. And look at uh, the stresses in uh, cemented boreholes, uh, which wasn't really something that people were interested, I think, in funding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I had little, and learned a lot about. FEA, we ended up having a, you know, more uh, students after I graduated that I was able to, to go ahead and work with to look at the true stress mm-hmm. in uh, cemented boreholes. And actually, it was just on a panel with George King and a variety of uh, very illustrious folks talking about what's happening and why you're having collapses 
in wellbores and, yeah. and uh, explaining, uh, you know, some of the things we learned back then mm-hmm. uh, about why the not these non-uniform stresses and how more complicated the subsurface is than a lot of people really think it is. So you think things are because of the uh, questions that we still have with stresses and really just shale in general. You think it's going back to old school methods that we were studying back in the day and revisiting those types of technical analysis. Well, you know, not really. I, I think, you know, the technology, I mean, for instance, looking at uh, finite, or excuse me, uh, finite element analysis, mm-hmm. FEA, uh, you have so much better computers now. The mm-hmm. software has improved so much, uh, and you're able to kind of ride uh, that development uh, of the technology behind an ANSYS or Abacus and look at contact elements, all these things that you're able to come up with much better ideas about why well bores are failing and why the rocks are breaking the way that they are. Yeah. Well, okay, so you've gotten your PhD, and now you decide to stay on as a professor here, but you also decided to be an inventor, and you've done a great job at bringing young engineers along with you. So some of your inventions, the ACST, the Frac Optimal, and the Downhold Tractor. Can you take us through what these actually are and how you plan or your vision for them to help redefine this industry as we, you know, become more efficient, more optimized? Well, and so when I started looking at, uh, this was probably in 2010, one of the big questions was how do you exit well bores? Mm -hmm. And we started looking at, and I was working with uh, Bill Eustace on how to put together systems to easily you know, drill horizontal wells. And that's where this sleeve system started coming from. And you started realizing, ah, but you know, what people are really interested in is fracking in in hydraulic fracturing, uh, and being able to exit the well bore, uh, and cause this fracture where you want it in a well bore when you want it Mm -hmm. and be able to get, uh, you know, get whatever you've put in there to do the fracture stimulation out of the well bore. And so, uh, uh, we started working on this got a patent, which is critical, because if you don't have the patent, uh, it's as though the technology you don't own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a good way to look at it is that if you have if you, if you have a technology, but you don't have the patent on it, mm-hmm. somebody can actually come up to you, it's similar to a house, start charging you rent. And if you don't like what they're charging you, they can just kick you out of your house. And so what you, have, <laughs> so what you have to do is understand that when you develop technology, uh, you don't really own the, the technology until you've put it in the four corners of a patent. Okay. And so... Uh, you Do people make that mistake, do you think? They don't realize? A lot of people have made that mistake. And, hmm. and so one of the, the biggest ones I think of is that made me think of this was uh, Dr. B.J. Mitchell. <laughs> and B.J., you know, was a very proud man, very competitive. And one time he told me, he said, you know, when he was working on, uh, you know, different types of foam fracturing and foam cementing, and if you don't understand the rules, he says, you're like the guy that sits down to play poker and you're asking people, you know, what's three of a kind beat? And, 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 and so you just didn't have a good understanding of how intellectual property worked. Yeah. And, and that's happened uh, other times at the, at the school uh, where there's been, you know, some real advances that have been made. And uh, for a variety of reasons, they just haven't been patented. And the professor misses out on a, uh, a lot of revenue. The school misses out mm-hmm. on revenue. And to tell you how effective it is, you look at it like Google, you know, which was actually totally based upon IP that was in, loaned 
by Stanford based upon these uh, uh, these doctoral dis dissertations mm -hmm. that the founders of Google had published uh, as part of their doctoral program. And they were then able to uh, found this entity that became Google uh, that Stanford owned a part of. Uh, obviously, the individuals that came up with the idea uh, and built those algorithms uh, did really well. They owned yeah. a lot of Google. Uh, and Stanford ended up with a windfall of around $320 million or so. That's it? When they sold. And, and it turned out they sold early. If they'd have waited just a little bit longer, it would have been billions of dollars. Yeah. But it's those things that it's the non-traditional uh, type of revenue that you need to earn so that you're able to offer better financial aid packages, have mm -hmm. much better types of uh, equipment to work with. Yeah. And so I started working on this path because the really good, uh, top-notch research institutions are very successful with some type of technology transfer. Mm -hmm. And Mines has not really found that niche. And it's a hard thing for us to do because unlike technology, like you'd say Google, where you're writing uh, code, mm -hmm. here our innovations then have to be prototyped. Yeah. You have to go ahead and, and, and be able to build things that are going to handle stress and pressure, uh, and that becomes expensive. Yes. So, so how can you start to do that? So, so in 2010, I started working on this problem, and we were we were got lucky, I guess, in some ways, uh, <laughs> it, is that we actually uh, had uh, some uh, people watched a presentation. They founded a, a small company. I was the chief uh, technology officer of Frac Optimal, yes. and we actually made money. We sold this design option for the, the, the system and monetized it in that way. And then I became the department head. Yes, uh, you did. <laughs> you know, one day, uh, you know, the, you know, Dr. Uh, Graves called me into her office and she had been promoted to the dean <laughs> and uh, was asking if I would be interested in uh, helping out and mm -hmm. stepping in as an interim department head. Uh, and it's a, a tremendous honor. For one thing, I'm an adjunct. You know, I'm not a tenure-track faculty member. Mm -hmm. And so I used to joke up to that time, I donated more money to the school than I took away in a salary. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, there's actually a, a lounge up there uh, on the second floor that's named after my parents. Oh. Uh, you know, the, it's the Dolores and Adam Dolores <gasps> Fleckenstein Lounge. I know that one, yes. And, and uh, so uh, I thought it was a really good way to honor my late parents. Aww. And so, you know, I was very glad to step in and and it was the whirlwind mm -hmm. because uh you know at that time you started having all of these students that wanted to be petroleum engineers the price of oil is a hundred and ten dollars a barrel yes and, i missed that and, uh, <laughs> you know you're worried about how you're going to keep faculty members uh, dr jennifer miskimmons and you know after I took the job, then I found out uh, uh, Dr. Miss Kimmons was actually going back into industry. Uh, Good Lord. So now I've got to start looking for, uh, you know, uh, adjuncts to be yeah. able to teach the stimulations class to 240 students, oh economics God. as well. Uh, in, 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 but at the same time, you started to see where... Uh, you could get good outcomes for the students. Mm -hmm. You could get the industry really uh, interested. Uh, uh, Dr. Monika Prasad uh, was involved with, uh, you know, well logging. Yes. We ended up, uh, you know, having some really good meetings with the uh, Denver Well Logging Society. Yeah. And they actually uh, had put together a program with these boot camps for the TAs that were teaching uh, the well logging class, 419. Do they still do that? 
I, I'm not sure. Okay, I'll check into it. <laughs> but in uh, in so that really I think helped because you you've got one professor, you got 240 students, and how do you handle that type of a of a load? Yeah, it's a big volume. It's a big volume. At the same time, you know, as you start doing things with adjuncts, you're able to keep the cost down for the you know for the the, the tuition, mm-hmm. and and you're also able to you know one of the things as a department head. You have to raise money, yes, uh, and uh, you know get donations, and then also attract uh, you know resources for your faculty to do good research, mm-hmm. and and so that also helps uh, you know start to lower some of the cost, and so we ended up uh, having a, a relationship with the KOC Kuwait Oil Company, yeah, and uh, spent a lot of time working on uh, this research roadmap. Uh, that uh, I think was really successful for them, and to try and bring this uh, this outside income mm-hmm. uh, into the school to again try and take some of the pressure off of uh, those budgetary issues that you can not have to continue to ask students for more more tuition. Yes. So you and Dr. Eustace recognized that completions were becoming a more and more complicated technical focus of industry. So Frac Optimal was birth, was sort of birthed out of that, and you were able to then lead into a few other things. So can you take us back through your inventions? Sure. So, so you know, then things, you know, uh, we attracted uh, some very, um, uh, you know, very good professionals. A gentleman named Todd Flaska was the CEO of Frac Optimal, did a great job with it. And then uh, after we monetized it, then, you know, it shut down for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you started looking at other types of issues. And so, yes. so you know, you've got uh, this issue of uh, gravity. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of people don't realize that the only way that you're able to drill a horizontal well is with the gravitational uh, forces in the more vertical section of the wellbore actually physically pushing the pipe. True. And so one of the questions is, well, how can you actually put something in the well that can start to tractor things in and out of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so first would be like coil tubing to be able to drill plugs out. Uh, can you get better types of tractor uh, methodologies to be able to, to, to go ahead and, and use wireline uh, to do a lot more things? And then the big kahuna is, can you start to develop tools that you put on uh, some type of like a, uh, a power section for mm-hmm. a mud motor? And you know, you know, use that power from a mud motor to be able to drive yourself in and out of well bores. And so, so we started working down that path. And at the same time, uh, you know, I was no longer you know as as involved in petroleum engineering. And I found out that a good place, and this is a great engineering uh, education tool, is to go over to say the mechanical and the electrical engineering. Uh, a capstone course, yeah. the senior design class, and start to have them work on trying to build these technologies. Sort of interdisciplinary there. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it turned out for those students, it was a tremendous uh, type of, a, of, a, of, a, of experience. Uh, the first thing is, you know, you've got this problem. How do you go ahead and get through the IP that's out there, the intellectual yeah. property, and also invent something that's going to work? And uh, in, in, in so you don't have the greatest, uh, you know, uh, of uh, uh, materials here to work with. Uh, you're trying to get by on a shoestring, which in a lot of ways is really good for the inventive process mm-hmm. uh, because you're, you, you're really focused on being able to come up with a way to do this prototyping and prove you've got how this technology works. 
and not spend a lot of money doing it. Mm -hmm. And so now we're on about the third year of this process. And uh, the first uh, sets of uh, videos I put on LinkedIn, uh, they got, <laughs> you know, like 10,000 views. Well, well look the, at you. Well, then the last time we did these uh, videos of these tractors, and we ended up within a week, we had gotten over 50,000 views from across the world. And, and so it started, you know, you, this is a great way to a, publicize. So it's, it's much faster than a technical paper. Yes. Uh, you know, you've got this video. People look at it, see how it works. And then you start getting feedback. And yeah. some people are telling you, well, you, you know, this doesn't work because of this. This is a great thing. Uh, somebody says, hey, here's, here, we might have a patent position you have to worry about. Hmm. Uh, and, and so it's a very good way to get out there and understand if somebody else has intellectual property, you may be yeah. infringing. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a great way to get the students to be able to see that you can start to develop these tools and these technologies that, uh, that can be really useful and solve these real-world problems. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the ACST Okay, that, so, that's cementing. So, so it, it is. And, and so what that tool was originally designed for, um, and it, it was in uh, kind of a response to one of the issues that was, uh, came to the forefront after Gasland. Okay. And so you have this movie, Gasland, and, and people were really concerned about whether aquifers are being contaminated yeah. by all the drilling and, and the fracking. Lighting uh, their kitchen sinks on fire. That was true. Gotta so, love it. So, so we actually got involved. I got a phone call right before I became the department head from a gentleman uh, from up at CU Boulder. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was their environmental engineering or department. Uh, and, and what he was asking was would we... Uh, joined together with them in this uh, National Science, Find Out, Science Foundation proposal to study the impacts of oil and gas development mm -hmm. in the Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, ourselves, mines, uh, there was uh, uh, CSU uh, and uh, CU, uh, a couple of other institutions uh, across the country. Yeah. And what we're looking at is to see how much damage you were doing during hydraulic fracturing operations. I mean, that was one part of it that we're looking at. And, and so we went ahead and looked at all of the wells in the Wattenberg field. So we mm -hmm. had a, a, a student named Carver Stone, who was just a, a great guy. Uh, and uh, we pulled all of the records for the about 18,000 oil and gas wells that were drilled in the Wattenberg. Mm -hmm. And it turned out there was over 30,000 water wells that were drilled in the middle of the field also, which gave you okay. this great uh, monitoring system yeah. to be able to look for. And so uh, we went ahead and we advanced, the, we looked at this problem a couple of different ways. So, so the folks from CSU and CU, they were monitoring and they went out and actually sampled a lot of these water wells. And it turned out that there is a distinct difference between uh, methane that actually comes from what you call biogenic gas, which mm -hmm. is swamp gas essentially, yes. or if it's from thermal uh, 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 thermal generation from mm -hmm. much deeper, and you have this very scientifically defendable difference. And what they were finding was that you did find gas that was in the aquifer, but the vast majority of it was actually coming from this biogenic gas. Mm -hmm. So and it, much shallower, it, swamp it, gas. Well, and it, it already existed in the aquifer. Yeah. And, and so, we, and we had found that there were 10 wells that had actually had some type of leakage from the well bore uh, to the water well. And these are old wells, yeah. Well, and, and so 
part is so they were older, but the difference was in, in, in was that the way they were drilled. So okay. so it used to be in the seventies people were drilling not to protect the aquifer. Yeah. They were drilling the wells to protect the water wells. Okay. So, so let's say you've got an aquifer down to 600 feet. Okay. And the farmers and the municipalities, they drilled the water well to 300 feet. Mm-hmm. So, so you may only set your your uh, surface casing to 400 feet. Okay. And then the bottom 200 feet was never covered. Yeah. And so if you had some sort of a hole in your casing, mm-hmm. then gas and oil could migrate there. And so what they found was these 10 wells, that there's no question that the gas was coming from the oil well that showed okay. up in the water but nobody found any fracturing fluid okay good. and so as i understand <laughs> they, they you know so the cu and csu didn't find those um, uh, elements from fracturing fluid okay. uh, in these water wells but you did find these 10 wells mm-hmm. but one of the issues that you also saw and this is where the acst came from yeah was that it's also very difficult both from a cost standpoint but just physically to do it to be able to uh, run a bond log in a surface casing and actually physically uh, determine if you've got some sort of a of a bond or a seal there mm-hmm. or not. And so what the ACST was designed to do was to be able to have a very inexpensive tool okay. that had uh, these encapsulated bores in the tool. So as you drilled through, but before you drill out the shoe, you could just stop, shut your BOP, and then just do a simple pressure test. And if you have cement in the outside of the of the casing, mm-hmm. then you just pressure up against the cement, okay. and you would therefore know that you've got a seal at the bottom of the surface casing, and therefore you've isolated that casing, and you've isolated the annulus, and therefore you've also protected the aquifer that's above. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that's where the ACST came from, was to give you a really low-cost solution to be able to, for somebody to be able to drill a well, yeah. and then be able to say, ah, well, I've got a uh, this assurance that I've ran this pressure test uh, that uh, shows that uh, that we have a seal at the bottom, and therefore, if you believe that there is some sort of uh, of uh, contamination in a water well, mm-hmm. uh, you need to look somewhere else. Yeah, because you know we've went ahead and done this uh, this type of a test. That's awesome. That's such a good <laughs> such a good idea. So uh, your downhole tractor that is designed to extend horizontals. It is. Yes. And, 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 and so what it's really designed to do uh, initially was, uh, for the first thing was, well, how do you engage the wellbore? And that's the first problem you had, was if even if you can develop something that rotates, how do you get this engagement with the casing or the, okay. the wellbore to physically allow you to push yourself in and out of the wellbore? Okay. And okay. there's a couple of ways people do that. Uh, uh, there's a simple type of a, of a tractor that works very well for wireline mm-hmm. that has uh, these, uh, these smaller wheels. Uh, you also have like an inchworm that's hydraulic. It almost looks like a reverse of a snubbing unit <laughs> that pushes itself inside and, okay. and, and out. Uh, but this has that ability to be faster and also to be able to have more force. Uh, to be able to, to go ahead and, and, and do this. Mm-hmm. And so now the, the we worked with last year was to try and figure out, well, could you come up with a wireline tool mm-hmm. or could you come up with some sort of tool for coil tubing uh, to be able to, to pull this casing or pull your coil tubing so that you can physically reach out farther to do clean outs. Okay. And so we started working down that path. Now, so, so now the question is, well, so you've built a prototype but now how can you start to adapt it so that you're able to make it work 
for the higher pressures, higher temperatures, et cetera. Okay. And so that's kind of what we're working on now is to be able to <laughs> make it a much more uh, attractive tool because at some point you got to start to attract outside investors to yes. come in. And at $50 a barrel of oil, it's tough. <laughs> it's not tough like to it. Do. It's not like a hundred dollar barrel of oil. <laughs> and uh, it's not the back of the napkin anymore, unfortunately. It's a lot tougher. That's for sure. Well, all of these designs. I mean, that's three more than most people come up with their, in their entire life, and they all came from you recognizing a either gap in industry or a way to better solution, and you just took it and you ran with it. So, if someone was interested today to <laughs> connect with you, how would how would they get a hold of any of these? Well, and, and so, uh, you know, just a very simple advertisement. If you, if you <laughs> go out there and if you ever Google William Fleckenstein, the Colorado School of Mines. Oh, you I, will find him. Trust I, me. <laughs> I come up. Or wflecken at mines.edu. Easy to send me an email on, on something like that. Well, Dr. Fleckenstein, you really have seen it. You were here before the great crew change. You saw the uh, shell boom happen. Most people I need to lead into this uh, question, but I have no intention of doing that. I just want your initial thoughts. Um, what is happening in our industry today? What do you see opportunity? Do you see hesitation? Are we just adjusting? So just high level, what do you think is going on right now? Well, and, and I think uh, this gentleman, I think from ConocoPhillips, um, he had went ahead and had a presentation, and, and I think he hit it probably the best of anybody that I've heard. He said, you know, now we have access to upwards of uh, 500 billion barrels equivalent of oil and gas mm -hmm. in the United States. That's a lot. It's a lot. And, and so now the question is, how, as the technology improves, do you do that in a way that doesn't cause everybody to go bankrupt? Yeah, no kidding. And, and so part of the problem is the technology continues to improve, the cost improves. And, you know, like for instance, nobody's drilling the Barnett Shale, which was no. the discovery of shale development with horizontal drilling and multi-stage fracturing. It was a pivot point for us. Because people found that you could go to places like the Marcellus <laughs> and it, the, the costs were much better. Yeah. But the problem is, is companies have invested a lot of money and they invested it with this understanding that the price of gas was going to be, say, $5 an MCF or $6 an MCF. Mm -hmm. And now the prices went to $2 an MCF. So, so now how do you pay off all the debt that you've incurred as you developed all of this growth? Mm -hmm. And it's the same that happened with oil later. Uh, was you took the same technology, now you start applying it uh, to oil and gas, first in the Bakken, I think, and then the Permian, mm -hmm. a variety of places uh, around uh, the United States. And the cost has continued to drop, but you have this, this asset that you've now developed, and it was higher cost, mm -hmm. and you've got debt. So, or you've got shareholders that have put money into it. Yeah. Uh, how do people get their return back? as the underlying commodity price continues to drop because the technology continues to improve. Mm -hmm. And that has been really hard for the industry. And, and all you have to do is look at the stock prices of a lot of companies. It's a little terrifying. And see what happened to them or whether they just went away. And so it, it, it's one of these issues that uh, it's uh, very good for the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got the lowest oil and gas costs of energy in the world. Yeah, we do. And so you look at natural gas, you look at how big of an impact it has on manufacturing, uh, the, the lower cost we have for heating, electricity bills. And, and so here you have this 
just an absolute bonanza mm -hmm. that has happened for the economy. But at the same time, how do you go ahead and make sure that that original people that did the development don't go broke? Yeah. And at the end, it's kind of the it is the free market. I mean, you have to to you know manage risk. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do you make sure you don't get out too far over your skis? <laughs> uh, you look at the hedging that's been done. Yeah. Uh, with uh, different companies that have been able to survive, even though they gave up the upside. Where I remember back in the, uh, right before the crash, some people had hedged $80 a barrel, and they were being criticized on Wall Street because the price of oil was $100 a barrel, and they are giving up $20 of insurance. Yeah. But they had a couple of years' worth of that high revenue, at mm -hmm. $80 a barrel on their oil, where other people were trying to get by on 40 and 50 Yeah. And, and, and so now you've got that, that problem of how do you go ahead and manage this risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of it comes down to understanding the financial end of it. And, and this is one place where the education, I think, of, uh, of uh, engineers, it, you really have to think about the financial side of what we're trying to do. I mean, we're not trying to make oil and gas, we're trying to make money. Correct. And it's any energy, whether it's uh, renewables or uh, oil and gas, it really comes down to you know trying to make sure you're you're profitable, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that you've covered your covered your risk. Yeah. And uh, and, and so one of the things that was very important for me. I've been now this is the tenth year I've been the the uh, chairman of the board. It's a volunteer position of the Crate Union of Colorado. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and so here you have uh, this ability to uh, manage risk and, and understand how credit works, uh, and uh, just be able to teach. Uh, students just how important it is to understand uh, you know what an investment is you know what a loan is and 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 the expectation is that you're gonna have to pay that loan back exactly and and how do you manage that risk yeah that's associated with it and so so as people talk about is we're going to this energy transition mm -hmm. now the question is well how do you manage those investments uh, and manage the risks associated with intermittent types of supplies of electricity yeah. from both wind and solar uh, in, in, in how do you manage the economics of this and, and, and I think this is going to be something that's going to be real critical as far as you know what's the place of oil and gas here and the place of, of these renewables mm -hmm. uh, in order to, to make sure that uh, you don't end up causing the United States to become a high energy <laughs> a high cost energy uh, producer and then you've got those issues that are going to happen with the economy yeah so it's interesting that you talk about preserving the profitability of this uh, of our current industry the oil and gas industry because some of the things that you're seeing sort of float around in the headlines is that service companies tech companies are losing more and more of their margin i mean working on razor thin profitability if any at all and yet we'll see some super majors touting, we drilled faster, we were able to produce this much more, we banked our reserves in this capacity. And it's not really trickling down to the service side of our industry. So it seems to me that these efficiencies that we're so lucky to have, the smaller you know, carbon footprints, everything, it's kind of killing us in a way. But what is your opinion on where the service and tech side I guess, experience the profitability that some of the operators might experience or might be experiencing. Not, not that we're at $120 oil, but like, how does that gap get filled? What needs to adjust and how do we do it? Well, you know, and I think you look at the successful service companies, 
you know, really good example probably would be uh, Liberty Oil yeah. Services, mm-hmm. uh, run by Chris Wright. I know uh, him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Chris, uh, you know, he uh, has had great success uh, with the technology that he's been able to uh, start with Microseismic. Uh, you know, founded a company, I believe, called Pinnacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had a, a great deal of, uh, of uh, economic success with that. And so one of the issues you have is how do you, again, manage those investments uh, and, again, make sure you don't take on too much debt uh, and be able to manage where that, that debt actually is. Uh, and, and there is a transition. I mean, you have this this investment that was for conventional types of, uh, of uh, services, yeah. uh, different types of tools that may just not be being used as much mm-hmm. right now. True. And uh, so, so the question is, what do you do uh, as far as managing the type of debt that you may be taking on as a, as a service company? And then being able to make sure you're charging enough to be able to cover your margins yeah. and not be in a position where you feel like you have a gun to your head because somebody uh, is, uh, you know, your bankers, the people on Wall Street, whoever mm-hmm. gave you that money uh, is trying to drive you to get more revenue yeah. uh, that uh, may be causing problems with your margins. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a real tough problem right now, I think, for everybody in the industry. Because yeah. we want to preserve the jobs that we do have. We already work lean and mean, and I just... I hate hearing about the layoffs, especially when it just might be a tweak of the, you know, of the management practices. So who knows? But it's interesting that you mentioned re, uh, reassessing risk assessments. So we're seeing completions and operations really take the bulk of the cost. And, you know, mostly it is completions because we want the bigger, better frack. We want a better drainage area, things along those lines. So having had your experience from entrepreneurship and, uh, being an innovator, what, where do you see we start reassessing risk? How do we start making risk, or how does risk adjust in this uh, current environment? Well, there's a tremendous number of different risks. I mean, you've got financial risk, um, you know, you've got environmental risk, you've mm-hmm. got uh, risk to health, human, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, humans and the environment. And uh, in, in, uh, you also have strategic risk and get reputation risk. Yeah. And uh, in, in, in so you have to look at all of these different uh, areas of risk and manage them. Mm-hmm. And not just manage them, but really uh, succeed. I mean, nobody wants to wreck the environment. Uh, you want to make sure you're not doing anything that's going to hurt somebody, mm-hmm. uh, let alone get somebody killed in, in long-term types of health effects. So, so you have to manage all of those, those types, of it, which means you have to do the science to understand what they are mm-hmm. and how do you start to fix them. So it's like we've been involved with a project that the COG C asked us to, to work on last year, which had to do with the flow line risk. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's the tragedy. Was that uh, the house? That, that, that it went ahead happened up at Firestone. Yes. And it you know turns out you've got this uh, this flow line, uh, maybe abandoned, maybe uh, inactive, mm-hmm. uh, but they built a house within six feet of it. You're right. And and so, how do you manage that risk uh, with the regulations? Uh, how do the operators start to in you know handle that risk? Uh, what do you do? Because there's two things. There's risk, and there's also consequence. <laughs> and, and, and so there's the risk of something happening, but there's also the consequence mm-hmm. of it. And, and those are two different things that, that, that you have to have to really manage and, and look at. And they can change. I mean, you know, you have this uh, field 
uh, this oil field which was built in a rural area and then you start having development on top of it. Exactly. And so how do you, uh, from a regulatory standpoint and from a company standpoint, how do you manage the risk that's changing? Mm -hmm. Because now you do have people that are there. Uh, you could have some type of an accident. You could have something that is not occurring in the north or in the in the north forty of a of a, of a farm, mm -hmm. but now it's in a it's in a urban area. Yeah. And so, how do you manage that? So, so you have to look at the look at uh, the risk models. Mm -hmm. it was one of the projects we did was to look at what the risk models are, what's the best practices that people have, and then how do you start to get to better uh, uh, quantification of that risk so that you've got an understanding about what that is and how do you then inspect and be able to determine where uh, these flow lines are, yeah. uh, what's being built close to them, what that uh, pattern should be of the houses built to them, yes. and what do you do in order to ensure that everybody's able to profit mm -hmm. uh, and not have to, to give up something like those poor people did uh, up in uh, up in Firestone. Yeah. And uh, so so you have to look at the at the risks that's associated. It's not just financial. Yes. Uh, you have to really look at uh, at all the different risks associated. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of interesting you lead down that line because that incident was at least from my perspective where I started realizing that that we were getting more and more political maybe not maybe not political is the right word but um unrest in terms of the oil and gas industry here in Colorado and it seems at this point I can't tell if Colorado being an oil state and having so many hardworking men and women in our industry you know going out to make sure that we mitigate those types of risk we're seeing a lot of protest against us we're seeing a lot of uh, legislation coming out that's really designed, I would say technically, to be a hindrance in some capacity, whether it be minimal or maximizing it to this uh, current Colorado oil and gas state. So why Colorado? Are, are we really becoming California or are, is this just, you know, growing pains? What do you think is happening to this state that might not be happening to other states? And then does it run the risk of going to heavier oil states like Texas or North Dakota or, you know, out on the East Coast? Well, when you look at a state like Colorado, there is a tremendous amount of people that want to move here. Yeah, and so like 5000 a month, right? So, so the electorate is changing, and, mm -hmm. and some Coloradans are actually leaving. I mean, you know, it's a very fluid type of a, of a situation. And, uh, you know, it's very attractive on the front range. You look anywhere from Fort Collins down to Pueblo. And this is the, the part of the country people really want to live in. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you have low taxes here. Uh, there's a, a variety of reasons why people would like to come here uh, to, to go ahead and live. And, and so you've got people maybe coming out here where they're not familiar with oil and gas operations. Uh, they're also, you've got a big increase in oil and gas production from uh, Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, True. And, and so you've got a lot more uh, drilling that's, uh, that's occurring. I don't say more drilling, but what it really is is that you're being much more effective with it. Yes. Uh, you've got bigger well pads, I think, that people are working with. And at the same time, you're trying to improve the technology so that it's going to be safer, it's quieter. Correct. Uh, and, and there's no question that's happening. Uh, all electric uh, types of frack fleets uh, mm -hmm. that people are, are working with, 
Uh, and I think there was a real well-documented uh, uh, case where I think uh, 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 Representative uh, Ocasio mm -hmm. uh, had come out to uh, uh, Colorado. Uh, and uh, she uh, had went ahead and uh, uh, was looking at uh, uh, a uh, up in Boulder and, and came out to look at a, some sort of a... This was last uh, week, I think. I, I think so, and yeah. had some type of a, of a camera. And, you know, you're looking at a, a fleet that is electric. Yeah. And, and so you're not burning the hydrocarbons. And, and I think that she was looking at uh, with a FLIR camera, and so, so you're also... Uh, you've got the issue of uh, heat that's mm -hmm. coming off of, uh, off of mud. And, and, and so there's an education uh, about, uh, you know, just how clean uh, some of these operations are going to be. Yeah. Uh, and you have to really spend a lot more money, I think, from the education standpoint to get, uh, you know, what uh, uh, the oil industry, if it's, as it, as it states, it's, it's a safe type of a economic type of mm -hmm. engine for the, for the state. And, and so how do you convince people of that? And, and yeah. so the way you do it is you have to look at the fears that people have uh, and, uh, and, and, and be able to convince them uh, that those fears are uh, going to be taken care mm -hmm. of. Uh, you also have to look at from a standpoint of uh, global warming and, and, you know, how big of an issue is it with uh, oil and gas with the economics versus wind and solar mm -hmm. and what's the economics and and if you do have a, a difference in cost between uh, wind and solar versus oil and gas then how does that affect the the, the, the economy and not just the economy but you know are there going to be more people that are homeless mm -hmm. uh, less people that are going to be working in the oil field I mean look at outside of well count you know weld county and tremendous amounts of uh, of jobs that are there uh, and, and I was um, uh, went up to Pennsylvania on a uh, on a tour for my distinguished lecture tour talking about this aquifer protection and uh, I remember uh, there was uh, uh, this road and, and I'd stopped and on one side uh, in Pennsylvania, things looked like they were much more prosperous. And then you looked up the other, you went up the road a little bit further, and it turned out things didn't look as prosperous. And what it was <laughs> was you went from Pennsylvania to New York. Really? New York. And what was occurring was in Pennsylvania, you had the Marcellus yes. development occurring. The Marcellus extends into New York. You just have an yeah. arbitrary state line that you can't do any fracturing operations. Oh, they won't even let us like get uh, new pipelines up there to get to people who need to, quite frankly, warm their house. And, 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 and so here you have this big difference in the standard living of those people living mm -hmm. in upstate New York or in western New York Correct. compared to people living in Pennsylvania. And so one of the things that the oil industry has to do is it has to convince people mm -hmm. that the risks associated with oil and gas are going to be worth it from a standpoint of the economic development. Correct. Uh, and also, you know, what's actually truly happening, you know, with, uh, you know, with uh, things like the, the Paris uh, type of, uh, of agreement, mm -hmm. uh, the protocol. And are you going to just be taking economic activity that it would be occurring in the United States, moving it to China or somewhere else that may not have quite the same type of stringent uh, uh, requirements that you would see under uh, the oil and gas, uh, or excuse me, the, uh, under the, the, the Paris uh, uh, Accords, uh, and you're not seeing 
uh, as much uh, from the standpoint of uh, emissions in the United States, but you have more emissions mm -hmm. elsewhere. And therefore, you're not really doing anything to try and stop that goal of stopping CO2 from moving up. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you're not doing anything to stop temperatures from moving up. Yeah. And, and I think there were a couple of podcasts that uh, uh, Bill Gates had on the subject that really were effective. And I think people should take a look at Bill Gates and, you know, kind of emissions and global warming. Yeah. And, uh, you know, start to educate themselves on, uh, you know, what's occurring. So, so I think the industry has to, A, be able to make that case mm -hmm. and know exactly what the economics are and the trade-offs are going to be. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have to spend some money to really be able to get the data to be able to make that case and educate people, which means they're going to have to spend a lot more money, uh, you know, with uh, being able to market themselves yeah. so that people have an understanding that this truly is a decision to support oil and gas is a decision that helps them. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the ones who like to use scare tactics or flashy headlines for, you know, <laughs> inaccurate statements, such as some of the ones we've seen come out, and I know this isn't you, this is me, AOC, I would suggest probably not, <laughs> not touting those negativities until you actually know what you're touting. But one of the things that I think is so great about your career is truly your entre entrepreneurial spirit. You have, you have come into so many situations, not only as a businessman, but as an inventor, and you, your whole career is built on solutioning. So, since volatility is the time where, you know, the new leaders emerge, the new ideas are allowed to step forth, so to speak. Everyone who wants a seat at the table actually has the opportunity to not only get the seat, but find the voice. What, uh, I guess, tips, tricks, and lessons learned do you have for those budding entrepreneurs that we might see coming out of this prolonged downturn? Well, you know, technology is going to be driving everything everywhere mm -hmm. in many ways um and, and so uh you have to be you know setting yourself up for change uh you know if you're going to be a true entrepreneur you have to realize you have to be able to support yourself uh which means you know you like to make sure you're not spending too much money taking too much debt on yeah uh, for things that you really don't need because you know at the end of the day when you have a loan you got to pay it yeah. Uh, if you don't have money in the bank, you can't really keep yourself moving forward uh, because you run out of money. And, uh, you know, one of the problems that uh, entrepreneurs, I think, have is that you have this runway mm -hmm. and eventually you run out of resources. And if you haven't lifted off by the time you reach the end of the other runway, uh, you just don't fly. And hopefully you've managed. <laughs> That's a good it's way a, to put it. <laughs> it is. It, it's, it's the only way to, to look at it. And so, so, you know, you don't have failure until you stop mm -hmm. and so you have to set yourself up to not stop uh and and you start finding that there's a tremendous amount of uh complications or things that you just didn't realize were going to be as hard as they are mm -hmm. uh you know so for instance looking at the different types of inventions i've been involved with and you know having that ability to attract capital mm -hmm. to be able to get that last mile to build those uh you know those true uh, types of uh, tools you can run in the well or build tractors or anything you you have to have that ability to stay in the game yes and so you have to save some money uh, and you have to have that ability to maybe continue to go consult or do things that allows you to you know hit a, some type of a roadblock and then 
support yourself, figure out a way to get around it, mm-hmm. and then move on again. Yeah. And in a lot of people, the, the number one thing an entrepreneur and an, uh, an inventor has to have, he has to have endurance and persistence. I and, like that. And, and if you don't have those, then, then you really need to have some consideration about, <laughs> you know, what you're we're going to do. Are you really an entrepreneur then? Or are you are you set up for it? And, and there's a lot of other things that are out there. I mean, you look at, you know, like the Wright brothers. Yeah. And, uh, and you could actually take a look at um, their uh, collider that they built, say, in 1899. Mm-hmm. And they had basically solved all of the problems that you really had with um, uh, the ability to fly, uh, you know, you've got the ability to start to bend wings and you look at what they did, I think in 1901 or so. It, and then suddenly they put a motor with it mm-hmm. and they've got powered flight and, you know, but they had solved all the problems of control and they had went ahead and looked at the issues and they found out that the published models were wrong for lift. Mm-hmm. So they actually built their own wind tunnel. <laughs> and these are guys that are not called, you know, they didn't go to college. Yeah. Uh, they're not scientists. Uh, they, they were just people trying to solve a problem. And they would continue on. They would build bicycles. And then they would head down to Kitty Hawk. And they decided to go to Kitty Hawk. And they found that's where they had the right winds. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they would just continue on until they had physically built that famous first airplane. Yes. And, but if you notice they weren't the ones that really drove it to like Boeing or to become the ones that really commercialized it. True. And, yeah. and, and so somebody might've had that initial uh, type of innovation, but you may not be the person that has the ability to go ahead and actually, uh, to drive the, the optimization, mm-hmm. the commercialization. Uh, and, and, and so you have to be prepared to start to bring other talent in. Yes. Uh, you have to be flexible uh, to continue to drive things forward and also understand where the market is, mm-hmm. you know, because in the early 1900s, uh, you know, people still had looked at airplanes and they, you know, they thought it was amazing. You saw the Wright brothers went to Berlin. They went, were flying around, uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty. But the question is, was, would you really get on that and, and fly from, you know, New York to Los Angeles? No. That was years <laughs> later uh, that it, it, it took nope. to get there. Uh, but, you know, you, you had this gigantic leap forward. And some people argue that that's when the, the industrial age really kicked off again. Because now suddenly people have this technology that is going to lead to literally the stars. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it's the same thing happening in shale development. Okay. Because people, once they put together the idea of horizontal wells and multi-stage fracturing, you, you continue to improve the process. And it's the same with airplane flight. You, you look at the Wright brothers and you look at a biplane versus what we're doing now, uh, jets versus, but you still saw that initial um, uh, framework of the invention of the airplane uh, that we have today there. And so now the question is optimizing it, making it so it's better, it's faster, it's more economic. and. We're not sure where that's going to end with uh, shale development. That's very true. Do you think, or how's this? Why do you think it is so difficult for engineers, and I'm talking anyone under 10 years, to go from field to firm? It seems that if you have, you know, years of field experience, it's still hard for you to transition into those 
operational teams, and even some of the further down the line technical teams that you think would be the next progressive step. So is it is there just too much of a cultural difference between firm and field, or is there something missing in the training? You know, not really. I, I think, you know, like when I was uh, hired to be the man on the rig, and that, and that mm-hmm. was tip, That was exactly what I'd been hired to do, was to be the guy that then like gets... Like company man? To be the company man. Okay. You, you get the books, you have the, you know, the signing authority. Yes. Uh, well-controlled issues. You've got tremendous authority to do things. Uh, you're the one that's there to protect... Uh, you know, health. You're there to protect the environment. You're there to get the to get the wells drilled. I remember the superintendent. You said, you know, you've got this well procedure, but it's a guide. You're, you're the right. one. You're it's the just one. An outline. <laughs> you're the one that's actually, you know, that's that's flying the plane. You're mm-hmm. the one that's 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 drilling here, and in 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 so at the same time, you know, we actually spent time in the office, uh, you know, designing the wells. Uh, and, and it turned out that you had a much better idea because you had been in the field. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be able to find that pathway to essentially go back and forth. Okay. And, and some engineers, they hate the thought of being in the field. Uh, that's criminal. And, 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 and the reason is, is because, you know, it's a 24-hour-7 operation out there. Yeah. And, you know, back in, uh, you know, the 1980s and 90s, the price was $15 a barrel. And I remember I had two rigs. I was on call. I had a pager. You didn't have a cell phone at the time. What's a pager? And, no, I'm kidding. And, and, I actually do know. <laughs> and, and anyway, so so here you had, and you basically built your almost your life for, and you worked six days on, three days off. It was almost like the roughneck school yeah. schedule. And you were out there for casing jobs. You're out there when people are logging. And you were out there for a tremendous amount of time mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to go ahead and, and build these build these wells. But once you then came back in the office, you had this um, this experience about how uh, you know what you saw worked and what didn't work, and your performance from a like an AFE economics basis was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things you have to do is be able to uh, quantify you know how you're performing, uh, make sure people are aware of how you're performing, KPIs. and make sure that they want to have you on their team mm-hmm. uh, because you're going to help them. Mm-hmm. And so you need to make sure you go to things like SP uh, networking you know, uh, section uh, dinners and and be able to to meet people and and uh, and not be afraid to to, to move a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because there's there might be you know in one op- one part of the company there's not the opportunity but another part of the company there may be yeah and you may jump from drilling over here to production operations and mm-hmm. completions in asset in asset teams. And you get this big exposure, so so don't be afraid to make those moves, and also make sure that you uh, are comfortable speaking in front of people. Correct. Make sure you're soft very, skills and soft all that. skills, but in 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 make sure you have that ability to uh, to sell yourself. Yeah. And sell your work. <laughs> so, given your experience, what big shocks or maybe something on the horizon? Do you foresee anything that? everyone should sort of keep their ear to the ground, sort of nose on the grindstone, pay a little bit of attention to in the peripheral that might be coming down from this downturn? Or do you think we're going to be kind of smooth and steady and then eventually hit, hopefully, an upturn at some point? Is there anything that's kind of like sitting on your shoulder a little bit? Well, you know, when you think of it from the financial standpoint of the the financial system, 
um, you know, we have a tremendous amount of debt around the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you start to realize that the financial crisis that drove the price of oil down in 2008, 2009 was a total external event. Yes. You know, and, and, and so you have to prepare for these external events that are going to occur. Uh, There's rumors know, that 2008 could be coming back with a recession. Well, you could be a recession. You could have, you know, where, and it could be the true black swan, you know, <laughs> where you're not sure what's going to start to move the dominoes as far as with the um, the amount of debt that's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, uh, uh, systems, uh, like, for instance, in China, you may have uh, underwriting that, uh, you know, is... Uh, you know, uh, questionable. You're not sure exactly how they're underwriting the debt yeah. that, that occurs there. Uh, you know, what's occurring uh, with a, a relatively opaque system mm-hmm. uh, versus in the U.S. it's relatively uh, relatively open. Yeah. Uh, and, and at the same time, you look at our deficit that we have in the country, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where it's very easy to make uh, things better when you have a credit card, you keep on spending. <laughs> and I think that people, is a from, killer. people from personal experience know that if you continue to, to, to spend money off your credit card, and as long as you haven't reached your limit, uh, you know, you can buy things. You can do all yeah. types of things. And, and so that's one of the worries I think that people have to look at is this external event that is going to cause uh, commodities prices to drop. Uh, and uh, how big of an impact is that going to have on mm-hmm. people's? But at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, you know, companies that uh, dropped in price uh, that didn't go bankrupt, they, you know, were 40 to 1 mm-hmm. as far as how their valuations improved. You had opportunities to, to go ahead and uh, uh, switch jobs, uh, sometimes uh, involuntarily because you had to, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the company that you worked for laid you off. That's true. And, and so you're going to have to really be prepared for some type of external shock mm-hmm. that is going to drive the price oil downward. Uh, and price of, uh, of gas also. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, it could be the election. There's a variety of things uh, that are going to cause, cause some issues. Especially coming up in 2020. Ugh. Well, um, you, you are definitely an innovator. You are always adjusting. You're always evolving. Your days are busy. So from 12 a.m. to 11.59 p.m., do you have a morning routine? How do you stay organized? What time do you wake up? Do you do you actually sleep? I mean, can you take us through a day in the life of Dr. Fleckenstein so that we can understand how you stay proactive and efficient and maybe that will help someone do the same? Well, I mean, you know, when you're looking at it from, you know, from my viewpoint, uh, you have to be able to perform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so you have to bring economic value uh to whatever organization you're part of, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a consultant, you have to be able to uh, make people glad that they want to hire you. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and so you have to be able to perform. And it's one of those things where if you don't work for a, a company, mm-hmm. you know, where you have a, you know, basically a 40-hour type of a work week, you now have a lot of freedom. And at the same time, you have to, you know, make sure you charge enough or make enough money to, to pay your own uh, uh, sick days. Uh, vacation, those are things companies provide. Uh, you know, you're just heading off to go do something and you're not getting paid for it. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, you, you have to realize if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to pay for all of the things you want to do 
but you're the one that has to write those checks. Correct. And have that understanding. So you have to make sure you price yourself to, to be able to do that. So, so your time is going to be dependent upon what type of projects you're involved with. Uh, and then also things you do, like probably the most important thing I do is volunteering for the credit union. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I probably would do that before. That would be the last thing that I give up. And even <laughs> if it's, you know, working the school of mines, uh, you know, that's such an important type of thing. And I don't make a dime for it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so uh, you want to do things that are very important to you have time to do those. Uh, and realize that it's you're going to lose time. I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're going to have to sometimes work the 16-hour days. Yeah. Uh, you know, you might be working on something. I remember working on things with uh, students a couple of years ago. We were trying to also file patents. And, uh, you know, students are up at 2 or 3 in the morning working on projects. And they sent me an email, and I'm sending things right back to them because I'm up at 3 o'clock in the morning yeah. working on that exact same project. in uh, in so... You have to, uh, you know, be able to have flexibility. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems a lot of people have is they're, they, they're tied to thinking, uh, you know, my day starts at 8 o'clock and ends at 5. Oh, and, no. <laughs> and, 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 and so you have to have that ability to, to make sure that you can go ahead and work when you need to work mm-hmm. and play when you need to play. Yeah. And and have and understand you've got that, that flexibility to, to be able to do that. Um, and, and so... The one thing that's probably most important is you got to identify the the most important things you're doing, and then focus and do those. Correct. And you know, put prioritize. First, put first things first. Uh, you want to make sure you're flying the plane. You don't. Yeah. You 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 want to make sure you don't get distracted by smaller things, and so make sure you do the big things first, uh, and and then kind of manage what you'd consider to be the smaller things mm-hmm. in order to to get those done. Well, Dr. Fleckenstein, what is a book, podcast, or other resource you would recommend that has brought you value? That's a, an excellent question. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's so many great things to, to go ahead and, 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 and take, a, take a look at um, and, uh, and, and read. Uh, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, being able to read different types of periodicals, whether it's the National Geographic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it could be Business Week, it could be the Wall Street Journal. There's so many things that are out there that you have to just be looking for different types of information that, 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 that really make a, you know, make a lot of sense for you to, to go ahead and take a look at. Uh, you know, different types of, uh, of novels, uh, you know, can really help you to, to, to go ahead and, and, and focus on and, and kind of expand your, your, your mind a little bit. Uh, you know, it could be looking back at, uh, at the classics. Could be like the the Peloponnesian War uh, by uh, Elsie uh, uh, Beatties, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, which started explaining how the almost like the First World War, uh, where you know you had these Greeks that were fighting to go to Syracuse, you you, you started into Sicily. I mean, it, it was just amazing to see how this whole thing was was moving forward. People are fighting with with uh, with knives, basically, yeah. swords. And, 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 and so understanding how things have changed and haven't changed. And so being able to read things that are really classic uh, is, a, is a very important thing to do. But also look at new new types of things. I mean, you know, things like The Sopranos. I mean, oh, The Sopranos is awesome. <laughs> yeah, being, being able to see things that really kind of grab you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it could be things that become more... Uh, you know, become more uh, realistic, uh, you know, like understanding how the Vikings 
uh, you know, went ahead and, 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 and what was the secret? I remember uh, I was watching a little show about the, the Vikings, and then I was over in Oslo, and you actually had a chance to go look at the technology they had, uh, which was really key, uh, that they had built this, um, this vessel that had these, uh, the long boats that had the wood that would slide back oh, across yeah. them when they had a lot of stress on it. Yeah. And that's made them. But then the question, when I looked at that, and I saw a reason, okay, but why didn't they continue to have these types of breakthroughs? Mm-hmm. And it was because the society didn't value that. And, and, and I remember when I was watching this, and, and, and it, it was just, why didn't they continue to advance? And, and, the, and because they didn't try. Okay. And they didn't value that. And, and so anything that you can look at, and there's so many different things to look at, uh, but, you know, read something, so read. Mm-hmm. And, and make sure you, you, you read something that may be different, maybe new. Mm-hmm. And it could be you read it and you say, God, this isn't doing me any good at all. Yeah. And don't be afraid to put it down. Okay. And look at something else. Uh, but, um, you know, so... so to tell you a specific book to take a look at. <laughs> uh, the Peloponnesian War would be a neat, neat thing to, to take a look at, I think. Well, Dr. Fleckenstein, you are such a hustler. You have such a unique perspective on business and industry, and you have such a thorough way of analyzing things. Thank you so much for sharing your story, talking to us, and answering all my questions today. I can guarantee you someone's going to listen to this, wake up the next day and just have a little bit more hustle in their steps. So thank you for the value you brought today. I greatly appreciate it. So what did you guys think? Fleckenstein is pretty damn impressive, right? Three inventions, multiple areas of research. I mean, he is the embodiment of innovation and ingenuity in the oil field. I hope y'all found his insights as impressive and motivational as I did. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions, shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Hold on, one more thing before you go. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.